open up to Galatians chapter 5. Man, the song we just sang, having those lyrics kind of wash over us um, at the start of the passage that we're about to look at, uh, I think is just really, really important um, because we're, we're heading into a passage of Scripture um, that, remember this is a letter, so this wasn't meant to be necessarily broken up, lingering on one portion of Scripture for a week and then, and then waiting a whole nother week to, to kind of hear more of it. Just by way of review, if you were here last week, you remember this, but we kind of broke into some groups. We were, we were talking about conflict these next three weeks, and, and really the, the role of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, really shows up a lot in this portion of Scripture. And we discussed this idea of what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Let's not let that be a religious knick-knack that doesn't mean anything. Let's really put flesh to that and, and, and think that through. Um, and, and we discussed the, uh, what should be obvious, but we stated it, is that we're walking in a war, that there is a conflict of these two natures uh, that we see. And one of the keys I want to just kind of leave you with um, is this. Um, hey, Jameson, these aren't showing what's there. Is that possible to get that worked on by you? Thank you, sir. Um, one of the main ideas that, that, that we talked about last week was this, walk and keep on walking. And over these next three weeks, last week was that we're walking in a war. This week is that we're walking in the valley as we look at kind of this list of vices. And next week, we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, a very famous passage of Scripture, and that's just walking in the, in the vineyard. Um, two specific lists in two different weeks. And basically, it's the bad news this week and the good news the, uh, next week. If Paul was a police officer, uh, there might have just been this first list going on. Because you, police officers, on a day-to-day basis, they see people usually on about their worst day. So it'd be easy to get cynical as a police officer about our community and what people are like. But, but Paul's not a police officer. Paul is a pastor. And pastors get to see people on their worst day because a lot of times pastors are called in when people are being booked for their police uh, activity that's going on or when they're in the hospital or when it's their worst day. But pastors also get to see people on their very best days. So for instance, here, most Sundays, you're on your best behavior, at least externally, right? So as a pastor, I get to see people smile. They greet one another. They usually give me a hug. Hey, how's it going? All of that. Um, and yet, I also get to see you not, not just in a, in a worship setting, but in service settings. And it's just a thrill and a joy to see people um, just on some of their, on their best days, but also their worst days. And Paul, as a pastor, sees this. He sees both sides of what he is writing about. This underscores just this reality, that there are two natures. There is a conflict going on. We know this from experience. And, hear this, there is victory. Victory doesn't come from self-will. That's not where it comes from. Victory was won by Christ, and it is given to us. So if you have victory over any sin, it's yours because it was given to you. Christ dying on the cross releases us from the power of sin so that we can be made whole. Now, our part, as we saw in the scriptures last week, is this. We're to walk by the Spirit. We're to follow the Spirit's lead. 
So, what are the, the desires that war against this? That's what Paul's going to go into. He's going to say, this, this walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, the reason it's such a struggle is there are warring desires that come against, uh, come against this. Now, Paul, uh, Paul doesn't get squeamish when making a list. He, he writes it as it is. And so, because he gets explicit, we're going to get explicit about it. Today is this, walking in the valley. Uh, look down at verse 21, Galatians 5.21. Galatians 5.21 um, says, and things like these. Paul's going to give a list that, frankly, is going to cover a lot of ground. It's going to cover a lot of different ways that we sin, but it's not meant to be this exhaustive list. Wouldn't that create modern-day Pharisees? Oh, good, I'm not these 15 things. I guess I'm good. What he does, he lists 15 things, and then he says these four words to undo all the Pharisees, or would-be Pharisees. And things like these. So as we read this list, um, pray against just just checking off. Nope, I'm not that. Nope, I'm not doing that. Nope, not that. One of the things Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, remember what he does by preaching through the law? Is he says, um, you know, a lot of you think you're in the clear because you haven't done the act. What is, what is Where does Jesus go to? He goes to the heart. He goes to the mind where every sin begins. So you know what? You just thinking this way about that person, you've committed murder in your heart. You've committed adultery with another woman in your heart because you've lusted after her. So G- Jesus cuts under our, 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 our kind of desire, our, our self, you know, uh, self-justifying mode that, that we can kind of get into. Oh, well, that's those evil people over there. That's not me. So I've been really praying. I would, I would invite you to pray this morning that as spiritual warfare is going on, as people are wrestling through this, that, that, that they'd be able to see clearly from the Scriptures what's going on. I'll just write this down. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 20, Jesus gave his own sort of list. There's a few different lists in Scriptures about, um, about, about sins and just kind of compiled in, in an area. And Jesus gave his own list in, in Mark chapter 7, and here was his big idea. He, he touches on a lot of these same themes. But here was his big idea at that point. His big idea was this, that the things that defile you aren't external. They're things that flow out of your own heart. That's where the sickness is. So so those things that defile you, he was specifically talking about food. It's not what you eat. It's not what you do or it's not what you abstain from or or do that, that makes you righteous or defiled. It actually emanates from your own heart. So again, Jesus getting to the to the heart of things. Paul here is echoing that same point, but from a different um, a different vantage point. He is saying that we're not made right by external things. So uh, this week in community group, maybe this isn't even in your community group questions, but look at Mark seven and and look at, at Paul's list here in Galatians. And what you see is uh, those hitting kind of from the same point. This is an internal thing. This is not external where we like to leave it. It's, it's easier to leave it in the external realm. All right, let me read Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, and you can follow along. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
As we read this list, Paul is pointing out something that is out in the open. It is on display. Some of your translations translate uh, verse 19 that this is plain to see, that this is evident, that this is clear. What he's saying is this. If you live to please yourself, if you just obey your, de- your desires, obey your thirst, as the commercial said years ago, this is the result. This is where that road takes you to. And Paul says it, it's clear, it's evident. I'm just speaking about that which is in the open. One commentator writing on this passage said this, that as fruit is to a tree, so behavior is to one's nature. Now, how many of you, raise your hands if you know that McDonald's is not healthy for you? Can you just raise your hands? Okay. Now, I won't make you raise your hands on the second part, but here's the reality. We still eat this stuff. We still eat McDonald's. Why? Why would we do that if we know it's not healthy for us? Here's the reason, okay? We are not trying to win gold medals, right? We're not trying to to win gold medals. And so we continue to eat McDonald's. Now, I'm watching the Olympics, as I'm prone to do during this time of the year, and, um, and, and on comes this commercial, and I realize that McDonald's is the official restaurant of the Olympics. Does this not sit strange with you? Not the eating Olympics, the real athletic Olympics. This is the official restaurant of the Olympics. Here's what we know. Here's what's plain and evident to us. A steady diet of the official restaurant of the Olympics does not produce the bodies that we see in the Olympics, right? I mean, think about it. Maybe curlers can get away with eating McDonald's regularly, but have you seen the skin suits that speed skaters? You don't want to see someone who's been eating a steady diet of the official uh, restaurant of the Olympics squeezing themselves into a, a speed skating suit. Right? You just don't want to see that. Cross country, they're burping up nuggets. That's not happening. They are not doing that. So, so what we see is this. We, 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 it almost, you almost don't even need to say it. But, but here's what Paul's saying. Equally so, it's just plain. It's evidence out there in the open. Although they say it's the official restaurant of the Olympics, we know that eating that does not produce this. So here's what the scriptures do to us. They just remove these silly veils that, that we put over ourselves sometimes. What Paul is saying is this. These things that I'm about to list, these are just plain. These are the works of the flesh. It's plain. It's evident. It's clear to us. So let's not play games. Let's not pretend. I didn't know I was going to gain all this weight and feel terrible and have no energy to do my event. I thought I'd fly like an eagle off that ski jump. Sorry, coach. I was loading up on Big Mac. No, that doesn't fly, right? Pardon the pun. Um, so, so, so that's what Paul is saying here. Equally clear is that the, the works of the flesh. Just, uh, just write down 1 John 3.10. I've got it on the screen for you. But this is kind of the easy reader version of what Paul's saying. By this it is evident who the children of God, who, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I love the book of 1 John. It paints in such black and white terminology, and he just puts these tests out there. The one who's not loving their brother, the one who's not pursuing God in righteousness, they're not children of God. Let's just, let's just be clear about that. So the question that ought to land on you and I this morning is this. Can a blood-bought, 
spirit-filled lover of Jesus still do these things that we just read? Is it possible for, for, for a Christian to do these things? The answer to this has massive implications for how you live the Christian life. Theology is incredibly practical. To not know the answer to what I just asked leads you down some really weird heresies and some really weird places, and the Bible speaks to it. Look down at verse 21. Look at the warning that's there. Those who do such things, this list we just read, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I hope that if you've been with us in the Galatians series, I hope your mind is saying this. But wait a minute. Didn't we already learn from Paul that we get Christ's resume? Didn't we already learn that 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 righteousness that he did, he exchanged that for all of our sin and guilt? Does that mean that work salvation is somehow back in play? I thought we weren't on the, the treadmill of performance where we have to do certain things to earn our way to God. I hope you're asking those kinds of questions because that ought to stir up when you read a passage like this. Because I know what you're thinking is you're thinking, wait a minute, I do those sort of things. I may have done some of those things this week. I may be thinking about them right now. Who told? No one told. This is the flesh, right? And it rears its ugly head. God wants you free from the endless speculation and wishy-washy about whether you're in or out. I think that's a great tool of the enemy, is to constantly be uh, whispering in your ear. He's known as the accuser, and he will throw your actions back on you in a heartbeat. Do you not hear the enemy, the accuser, say this to you? Would a real Christian think, feel, or act that way? You ever hear that? That's, that's, that's an accusing voice. Do you really think you're going to get into heaven doing this, acting that way, responding like that, feeling like this? That's the accuser. How do we battle against that? Does the Bible speak to that? You know what the first part of the gospel is, right? The first part of the gospel is this. You are a hopelessly lost Sinner. You are filthy in your sin, and you have no hope of ever really changing. And you're doomed because there's punishment coming for all the wrongdoing that you keep heaping up on yourself. That's the first part of the gospel. You know who preaches the first part of the gospel over Christians nonstop? It's the accuser. It's the enemy. Satan loves to preach the first part of the gospel. You're a filthy sinner. You know what he never does? He never completes the truth. He never preaches part two. What's part two? Jesus saves, right? He's pulled us up out of the miry clay. clay. He's, He's cleaned us up. He's clothed us in his own righteousness. He's seated us at his table. We're in on the inheritance. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's no awaiting punishment. He bore it all for us. That's part two of the gospel. Is someone excited about part two of the gospel? Help me out here. There you go. Give me a fist pump or something. There you go. Thank you. 
That's, that's good news. Satan wants to leave us lingering in the first part. The reason I wanted the song, I mean, it was a great song choice by Rob to just sing, oh, how he loves us. And let that wash over us so that as I'm preaching from the truth, God's word, you don't allow the enemy to come in and preach, hey, you do some of those things. If people in this body only knew, those are the, those are the whisperings, those are the voices of the enemy. You in a heartbeat, you remember part two of the gospel. You can make agreement with that's, that's who I was. God's redeemed me. I've been reborn. I'm someone new now. The key to understanding the warning that is in verse 21, this is very important, is to understand the word do. If you look at the Greek of do, there's, there's two distinct words. Uh, one, that, one that carries out the idea of, um, of those, who, those who do, as in practice these things. In fact, some of your translations say, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another translation says, says it this way, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word that's being used is those who, who make a habit of this. So here's the, here's the key difference that, that I want you to understand. Paul is not talking about the act of sin, but the habit of sin. Therefore, what if I stumble in this? What if I fall in this? What if I trip up in this? Here's a hint. You will. You will trip up in these things. This is the flesh that we're battling. So, so don't think, I've tripped up in this. Now I'm doomed to eternal hell and, 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 uh, and, and punishment. Christ took that for us. The difference with a son or daughter of God is this. They're not okay with it. They don't make peace with these vices. They don't stop fighting. Instead, what they do is they fall on their knees before the Lord and there's godly sorrow. And the godly sorrow that fills their heart because they long for something new leads them to repentance. And when there's repentance, they confess. And when they confess, they know they've been forgiven and washed clean and they get up and what do they do? They keep on walking. Remember last week? They get up and they walk by the Spirit. And you know what's behind them, forgotten forever, is that sin that they just dealt with because of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? That's the difference. That's the life of a Christian. Now, these desires that are not submitted to God produce a certain kind of fruit. Now, I grew up in church, and so I saw lots of of coloring pages, and I did lots of crafts about the fruit of the Spirit, okay? It might have looked something like this, okay? And I would be in church, and I'm coloring the different fruit. I cut out the different fruits, put them on popsicle sticks, and made crafts, and littered my parents' car, and all kinds of fun stuff. What I, what I can't remember one time ever doing is doing a single coloring page or doing a single craft on the fruit of the flesh. Now, I get how this would be a little awkward. The Sunday school teacher's up there, you know. Um, okay, kids, let's cut out the fornication fruit, and here's the sorcery fruit. You know, let's, let's glue those to our tree, right? Who remembers what the word drunkenness means? Now, what happens is this. All I ever heard about was the fruit of the Spirit. No plays on the, on, the, on, the, on the fruit of the flesh. Now, there is a time and a place and kind of an age appropriateness to, to all of this. 
But don't you see that if all you ever do is talk about one side of the fruit without talking about the reality of the other side, it actually paints the Bible as completely out of touch and not very real. If all we ever do is talk about the parts of the Bible that are safe to talk about around grandma and we don't feel embarrassed and we don't think it's the naughty stuff, then what happens is we actually relegate the Bible off to the, the religious knick-knack shelf once again. And we, and we go, that's not real life. That's kind of a pipe dream, but it's not real life. So it's really important. Now, again, I don't think we should make plaques with the fruit of the flesh on it and hang it on our wall. You know, maybe a big anti-sign around it or battle against it. I don't know, maybe like that. So I get why we pick out certain verses. But here sandwiched right next to each other are two paths, two natures. And to look at them honestly and to lead. Those of you who are parents with young children, here's one of the challenges of parenting. God, how much weight um, is the appropriate weight to hand to my children today? I hope you're thinking about that daily. When I was a youth pastor and parents said, hey, what age should I have the talk? You know what I'm talking about with the talk? You know, we're not talking about budgeting right there, okay? The talk, right? Sexual things. I said, I hope you're having a thousand conversations over, over every week of their life about this. Don't save it up for a talk. They're not thinking about it for 15 minutes while you talk to them at some magical age. Right? So what you're doing is you're saying, God, I wanna, I wanna lead my kid in a way. I wanna prepare my children with this. And so it is with this list. I was talking with a parent and they said, you know, as a family, we're reading through the scriptures this year, that the whole Bible as a family. I thought, what a cool idea that is. And, and there's some parts in the Bible that you get to and you go, you know, I've, we've been listening to the Bible on a road trip and Becca goes, can we skip this part? I'm like, yeah, that's probably good, you know. There's just some parts in there that young ears, you don't want them asking yet. What, what does that mean exactly? But how cool to see that the Bible speaks to all the atrocities and all the beauty that we see in this world and to lead them and guide them through that. It's interesting as we get into these, we're going we're gonna to kind of fly through these 15. But it's interesting to see that in 2,000 years of progress, we've not left any of these behind. The, the, the 15 that I just read to you and things like these, I mean, you just let your imagination fill in the rest. They're, they're, they're in our neighborhoods. They're in our families. They're in our churches. They're in us, right? This isn't just out there stuff. I mean, here we're this progressed society and all of these things read very current. All right. Collectively, uh, if you want to just... Um, if you want to just take the 15 and put one word uh, that, I, that I think ties all of it together, it would be this word, brokenness. What you see from the, from the fruit of the flesh is brokenness. And the way that Paul does it is he kind of groups these together in, in, some, in, some, in some areas for us. And we're going to kind of break those down. Uh, the first one, verse 19, he's just talking about broken sexuality. Uh, he brings up uh, immorality. Some of your translations say fornication, kind of an older word now. It's from the Greek word porneia. And you know where we get pornography from. It's that. It's all forbidden sexual relationships. Here's an, here's an interesting thought. Think about the church that you grew up in or that you've had experience in. Think about our church. I'm not going to leave ours out of this. But churches and denominations and whole religious swaths tend to emphasize certain sins 
over the other. And so what they'll do is they'll, um, they'll really pick on one kind of sexual sin even and leave other things untouched and untalked about. What the Bible does is it comes through and in three short verses just lifts the map on all kinds of stuff. So, immorality is just all types of forbidden sexual relationships. The Old Testament lays out a bunch of those for us. Next is impurity. That's all unmoral cleanness in your thought, in your words, and in your actions. That's impurity. Sensuality. Some of your translations say indecency or debauchery. Uh, This is the open and shameless display of these sins. Tell me, do we see this going on in our land? Yeah. It's just becoming more and more apparent that you just get to do this, and not only do it, but flaunt it. Flaunt it and basically say in your face, God. We're going to get to a portion of Scripture coming up which says this. God is not mocked. The seeds that you plant, you're going to reap a harvest of what those things are. So as we see sins flaunted more and more, celebrated more and more, it's it's imperative for us to know what those are and to have an appropriate response to those things. So what we see in these three is just broken sexuality. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 is broken worship. He has two things. Idolatry, which is the worship of anything but God, and all the practices that are associated with that. Don't think idolatry just as a little statue or a necklace hanging around your neck or some object. We have our own idolatry going on here. Sometimes it's in the form of the ultimate driving machine that you buff and clean and prim and proper and, you know, put, you know, sometimes that becomes the object of worship, right? It could be career. It could be our families, our children, our trophy kids, right? I mean, it could be all these different things, um, but it's worshiping. It's having something that's taking top place over God. That's what idolatry is. Uh, he then goes on to talk about sorcery or witchcraft. This is the practice of attempting to harness the powers of evil, of attempting to help the powers of evil by different practices. What's, what's really beautiful as you read through the Bible, a Corinthian was a, was a great example. Corinthians was a pretty jacked up church, and Paul had to write all kinds of crazy stuff about what they were doing to kind of undo the, the, the things they had done. But one of the things you realize with the Corinthian church is he points out, hey, look, some of you were saved out of witchcraft. Some of you were saved out of these really heinous sins, heinous external sins. And God's rescued you from that. Something new has been given to you. So it's, it's powerful to see that in this room, God has saved from every nook and cranny of our society. Some of you came from a relatively kind of clean, neat background. By, by nature, you're more rule followers, right? And some of you are, by, by, by nature, um, not just rule breakers, but, but you know, rule, thumb your nose at, shatter the rule breakers, right? And God saved you from that. And God brings us from all these different places. All right, so that's broken worship. Broken sexuality, broken worship. Uh, the next one is broken relationships, which leads to a broken society. There's a long list, so be ready for it. He doesn't just give one or two. Enmities, quarrels, and hatred, strife and discord, jealousy or envy. It's literally just the self-centered animosity toward others. The Greek word for outbursts of anger is temper eruptions. 
just like volcanoes of rage flowing out of a person. Next is disputes or selfish ambition. It's the idea of putting others down to get yourself ahead. Do we see any of this in our culture? I mean, we don't have to look very far, do we? And again, lest we think it's out there somewhere, doesn't your heart rate begin to, to race a little bit on these? You go, ooh, that one hits a little too close to home. The next one is dissensions or divisions. These are disputes over issues or personalities. Next is factions or heresies. And lastly is envying and jealousies. That's broken relationship. You allow those desires to go unchecked in you, that will produce that kind of fruit, and that will produce a broken home. That will produce a fractured church. That will produce a fractured society. Remember we talked about race back in Ephesians and, and some of these different things, and one of, the, one of the signs of the fall, one of the just realities of the fall is how we divide each other and how we look at each other and size each other up, and we don't see each other as, as, as image-bearing uh, created beings of God. We see each other by color, by zip code, by stuff, by clothing, by accent, by education, and we draw all these little lines. And you know what we do with it? We immediately start to kind of peg ourselves. And we rank. And we start seeing who's, who's above me, who's over me. Who do I need to overtake? And those kinds of things. Verse 21 is broken appetites. He talks about drunkenness and drinking bouts. Uh, it's really excessive use of intoxicants. You see it's broken because of this. Oh, the next one, by the way, carousing, revelings, and orgies. A lot of times, orgies, when you translate that, people think about it in a sexual way. It was really meant more as just like gorging, like gorging on drink and food. Isn't that a broken appetite? Some is good. Some is a gift from God. But what do we do with some? We have a broken appetite, and we have desires that rage within us. And so left unchecked, what do we become? We become alcoholics, and we become exceedingly overweight because we're just we want more of it. So it's our appetites that are God-given, desires that are God-given that begin to rage out of control, not submitting to God. Broken sexuality, broken worship, broken relationships, broken appetites. And then verse 21 uh, at the end, it's just kind of miscellaneous. It's the junk drawer, right? And things like these. Go read the Ten Commandments. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. There's lots more. Anything else that would violate God's holiness, God's holy law that he's revealed to us. And things like these. Instead of focusing maybe on the precise ways that these 15 vices kind of manifest themselves, I want you to step back for just a moment and think on the whole self-centered, self-serving, egotistical picture that these vices paint. Who's name is being glorified, whose wishes are being sought after, who is Lord, who's being served. Isn't it all self? That's what these 15 things are all about. Jesus says this, you can't serve God and something else. And that something else, when it's yourself, this is where it leads to. It leads to these fruits coming out. In a word, broken. 
Jesus begins his public ministry by being in a synagogue and asking to have some scrolls handed to him. And what he does is he quotes from the prophet Isaiah who was foretelling the Messiah. So he unrolls the scroll to that point, and he stands up, and he says this. This is from Luke 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I don't know how long he waited, but it must have been a little pregnant pause. And the scriptures say this, every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. (laughs) I bet. And then he says this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then he hands the scroll back to the scroll master, and he sits down. That's how Jesus starts his public ministry. What a kickoff, right? I mean, he stands up, and what does he emphasize? What does he stand up and proclaim? Where of all of Scripture does he go? He goes to good news, freedom, healing, and favor. Let The party begin. I'm here. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled right in your presence. That's how Jesus kicks this off. He came to bind up our brokenness and to set us free from the cesspool list that I just read off from Galatians. I love that it says in verse 18 of Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus did it with the Spirit. You know how we're to do it? In the Spirit. We're to walk by the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. The same Holy Spirit. Now I recognize that when I read a list like that, it's just ugly to bring those things up. But again, if the Bible is going to be explicit about it, we're going to be very explicit about it. It's ugly to bring it up because it stirs up negativity in us, doesn't it? We have, in our lifetime, spent countless hours in anguish, in anxiety, in pain because of that very list. Not just things that have emanated from us that we wish we could have a do-over, but things that have been perpetrated against us that falls in that very list. And when I talk about broken families, you think about your own splintered relationships. When I talk about broken sexuality, you think about your own wrestlings and where you've been with that and maybe things that have been done to you. I recognize that it's painful. I recognize that it's ugly to bring these things up, but I'm thankful that God reveals them to us and doesn't shy away from from them. So what are we to do with all of this? How are we to move forward with with a list like this? I want you to fill in the rest of this for me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. 
When perfect love comes, it casts out fear. You know what I know that you should do with a list like this? You shouldn't fear it. The rescuer has come. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You don't need to be afraid of this. So I know that you shouldn't fear it. If you're convicted this morning, praise God for that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're getting to know the Holy Spirit better in this passage. One of the ways to get to know the Holy Spirit better is to see the effects of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. It's hard to get to know wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. One of the effects, one of the works, one of the jobs, if you will, of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. Listen to, uh, listen to John. This is Jesus talking, telling his disciples he's about to go away. In verse 7 he says this, uh, John 16, But if I go, I will send him to you, this helper, this Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We get all of that in a few short verses here in Galatians. So if you're sitting here and you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, praise God from that. Don't run from that. You know what? Verse 21, if you don't belong to Christ, is for you. Those who live like this, those who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the out. Repent and believe. The greatest sin of the world is that they don't believe in the Son. They don't believe in what Jesus came to do and who He says that He is. From that stems all these other sins. So why would you wait? The warning is for you. Repent, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Be welcomed into the family. Receive the inheritance. That's the gift of eternal life. When a Christian says, hey, are you born again? That's what they're talking about. It's that moment of placing your trust in Jesus Christ. That's for you today. If you are in Christ, turn over to Romans 8. If you are in Christ, then Romans 8 is a massive comfort to you when it comes to a list like this. Verses 1 to 2 of Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I'd highly recommend memorizing it, lingering in it, reading it a lot. Romans 8, 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Skip down to verse 5. Verse 5 says this, For those who are according to the flesh, catch this now on what to do with this. What am I supposed to do with this list? Verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, catch this, cannot please God. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
If you highlight, circle, or underline in your Bible, circle, underline, or highlight verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, really the the wording is because that same Spirit dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch all that? You possess, or more accurately, you're possessed by the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave. So walk with Him. Keep in step with Him. Follow His lead. You want to know how to overcome these sins? Don't dig your heels in, grit your teeth, and try harder. Self-will has proved incompetent for you. I already know that because I've tried that. And I sometimes go back to trying that. It's incompetence. It's impotent for that. The power rests in setting your mind on the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, following the lead of the Spirit. I had to go down to Galatians 5.24. Go back to Galatians and read verse 24. I couldn't leave us lingering in that list. This is our closing prayer. Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a great verse. That's a great verse to leave you with as we leave here in a moment. The old nature must be crucified. We don't make deals with it. We don't try to minimize sin or suppress it or get better at not doing it. We kill it. That's a totally different strategy, isn't it? Than kind of managing it and getting a little better at it and chipping away at it. So we've already, we've already been through this. Paul already has alluded to this. And here he is in verse 24, hitting it up again. Here's the prayer that I want to leave you with. I've shared this with you before, but I spent an entire year just praying this before my feet even stepped out of bed. It's, it's walking and living in this reality. God, today, I'm dead to sin. I don't have to sin. I'm not bound to sin anymore. And I'm alive to you. You have awakened my spirit and my mind and my will and my desires, those things that are warring here in Galatians 5, to new things. These scriptures are powerful. I won't make any provision for my flesh. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. My flesh doesn't submit to God. We already read that. It cannot please God. We read that. Therefore, I'm going to put no confidence in my flesh. Today, I will reckon. That's a great, sweet, old southern word, I think. I will reckon the reality that I'm dead to the old me and alive to you. By the way, this prayer is taken from Romans 6.11. I would challenge you. I would invite you. I would woo you. I would beg you. Grab hold of this. This is what it is to set the mind of the Spirit. What does that look like? What does that mean? You know what it means? It means waking up in my younger 20s. I would wake up, and here's literally what would be on my mind. I would think, there's a Sharks game today. That excites me. I can't wait for the Sharks game later on tonight. I hope they win. They weren't very good, so that that wish rarely came true back then. What I saw is as I grew in Christ, I would wake up, and I remember thinking about it. I thought, wow, 
I no longer wake up and think about a Sharks game. Are the Sharks evil? Most of the time, no. When they break my heart and lose in the playoffs, they're a little bit evil. But, but do you see how that, that being the first thought in, in my brain versus waking up and setting my mind on the Spirit? Some days it's easy to set your mind on the Spirit, is it not? Ben, come on up. Some days it's just easy. You wake up and you're, you're thinking on the things of the Spirit. Sometimes you have to grab hold of your mind, get it in a headlock, and place it on the Spirit. So you're going to think about the Spirit today. And it's good to get a Scripture read. If you, if you listen to things in the shower or on your commute, listen to Scripture. Just get the book open and say, God, I want to I walk in this reality today. I already know it's a reality. I want to walk in this. I want to set my mind on this. Next week, please don't come just for this week. If you have vacation plans, get a refund. Come back next week so you can hear about the fruit of the Spirit. We're walking in the valley. Next week, it's walking in the vineyard. You, you, you want to be here for, for part two. Let me pray. God, you love us. And you've shown that to us. You've demonstrated that to us by Jesus' death on the cross. By his resurrection, we know that we have power to overcome the forces, the gravitational pull of sin. Thank you for that. God, for, for my friends here in this room who are wrestling with this right now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make evident and plain and clear, break down the defenses that would shove this to the sideline. They would keep this out of the discussion for a few more minutes so we can just get on with our day. If you are here this morning and you need to do business with God, you need to make a decision to trust in Him for the first time. You need to follow the Lord in baptism. You need to get around a group, be placed in a family that God's already provided for you and join in membership. Come do that. If you want to come kneel up here on the front, sit in these front chairs, I'll know, the elders will know, community group leaders will know, to come and put an arm around you and pray with you. Don't linger. Don't wait.